0: Hello, Four Corners Church, I pray that all of you are well. Today we're going to continue our series in Romans, and we come today to a monumental passage. Now you probably will hear me say that many times as we go through Paul's letter to the Romans, but this is probably one of the more significant set of verses that we have come to so far, and we've already covered many riches. But the passage I'm referring to is chapter 1 verses 16 to 17. So if you would please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. I want to give you a couple of quotes about these verses or this set of verses. First from Leon Morris, a commentator. He writes, these two verses have an importance out of all proportion to their length. The weighty matter they contain tells us much of what this epistle is about. And then here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones with volumes and volumes of, of commentary material on Paul's epistle to the Romans. He preached through Romans 13 years. You will remember I told you that at the very beginning of this series. And here's what he says about these verses. We are at a very important and momentous point in our study of this great epistle. I suppose that in a sense, there are no verses, listen to this, there are no verses of greater importance in the whole of Scripture than the two verses which we are now considering. Now you have to be a little bit cautious when you, anytime you hear a preacher say, these are the most important verses in all of Scripture. Uh, I know I've been guilty of saying that about many verses, and I'm sure Martin Lloyd-Jones Was as well. But it really is important for us to see the significance of these verses. And he goes on to describe how these verses led to the conversion of Martin Luther and therefore sparked the Protestant Reformation. So significant in their own right in this epistle, but also significant historically as he goes on in his commentary there to describe. So, why such lofty language. Well, verses 16 to 17 have been regarded by many as the theme of Romans. You could say that this is Paul's thesis statement for his most elaborate letter. So if you view Romans as most significant in, in terms of New Testament books or in terms of Paul's letters, and there are, by the way, many Uh, very important parts to the other epistles of Paul, so we don't want to over-inflate the significance of Romans. Ephesians comes to mind. 1 Corinthians is of great importance. Galatians, regarding the doctrine of justification, and so on and so forth. But we do understand that Romans has stood out historically in terms of its unique quality, its unique quality in the, the spiritual development of the Christian church. Not that it is more significant than the other books, but that it has been particularly used by God among His people. All inspired Scripture, but Romans has had this special place. And within this special epistle, here we have in verses 16 and 17, Paul's thesis statement for the epistle. So in verses 1 to 7, Paul greets his readers and introduces himself and what he is about. Then in verses 8 to 15, he bears his heart and connects himself to his Roman readers. And now, in verses 16 to 17, Paul sets forth the theme of his letter. So we've had a number of sermons, but if you're trying to kind of get a, a An idea for the structure so far. We are in the third major section of the epistle so far. Greeting, Paul bearing his heart in thanksgiving and prayer and discussing his ministry. And then 16 to 17, his thesis for the letter. It should be no surprise to us at this point that this theme is the gospel itself. What is the theme of the letter, it is simply the gospel, the good news, the gospel that Paul preaches, the gospel whose content he introduced, you will remember, back in verses 3 and 4. There, Paul describes what the gospel is about. And so, the title for the sermon today is The Glorious gospel part one. Today we'll look at verse 16 and next week we'll look at verse 17. These are rich phrases that we find here in this passage so we really do want to take our time to look at them. So the glorious gospel part one and next week part two. Paul has mentioned the gospel a few times so far. In verse one he says that he is set apart for it. He's been set apart by God for the gospel. And then he introduces it as the gospel of God that was promised in the Old Testament and that concerns Christ, God's Son. In verse 9, he says that his ministry to the Romans is service to God in the gospel of his Son. And then, as we looked at last week, in verse 15... He says that he is eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome. So we've seen gospel, gospel, gospel over and over again in the first 15 verses of this letter. And here we come to Paul focusing on it very particularly. Why is it, as we looked at last week, verse 15, why is it that Paul is so eager to preach the gospel. As we read there, eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That was our second point last week in the sermon was evangelistic eagerness. Paul's eagerness to bring the gospel there to Rome. Why is he so eager? That is the answer that we begin with in verse 16. In other words, verse 16, the beginning, answers the question raised by verse 15. Verse 15 tells us Paul's eager. Why is he so eager? Verse 16 tells us the answer. With this simple word, for. For or because. I am eager to preach the gospel to you because... And he goes on to explain why. Why? And what we will find as we go through verses 16 and 17 is the frequency of this word for. So he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you for dot, 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 for dot, 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 for dot, dot, dot. So you see over and over and over again, Paul is sort of building a logical case. He's explaining this is because of this, this is because of this, this is because of that. Here's something that we need to recognize before we go any further. And that is that here in verses 16 to 17, we find the logic of evangelistic Zeal. I want you to notice that. We've already seen the driving force for evangelistic zeal. The driving force is what Paul describes in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, what? For the sake of His name. So we know that the driving force, the fuel behind evangelism is Christ's name. For the sake of his name. But here we find the internal logic of evangelism. Which means, which tells us that if the logic of verses 16 to 17, or really verses 15 to 17, uh, somehow gets disconnected, discombobulated in, in your mind, then there will be a decrease in that evangelistic zeal. But where the logic of verses 15 to 17 are present, there will be an increased zeal and eagerness about the gospel. This is important because it tells us that what we don't necessarily need to do is go and read a number of books on evangelism if we are feeling as though our hearts have grown cold in this area. What we need to do is meditate day in and day out prayerfully on the logic that Paul presents to us here. The logic that was always in Paul's mind as a gospel man. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will read... Verses 16 to 17. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 15 first so that you can see how verse 16 logically connects back to that verse. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Wherever you are, go ahead and be seated. As I said before, we will just look today at verse 16, 16, and next week we'll come and spend time in verse 17. But let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer as we come to this monumental passage. Heavenly Father, you have given us your inspired word. From Genesis to Revelation, you have made Yourself known, you have made known to us your glory found in the face of Jesus Christ. Every word of your sacred Scripture, inspired, powerful, and profitable. And what a blessing we have to go through it. Any passage of Scripture, as your people, as we saw in Genesis, and even the the text that we did before Genesis, we've seen the power of your word, and we're grateful to you, God. And now we come delighting in this wonderful epistle to the Romans, a letter, a a biblical book that has had such an impact on your people throughout history. And we find ourselves now, Father, at the theme of this letter, the thesis statement of Paul for this letter It is daunting to come to a passage like this to explain it and preach it. And I pray, Father, that you would grant illumination now and wisdom and clarity of speech. I pray, Father, that as your word is preached and heard, that it would have the impact that you promise even here in this passage that it has. God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That mighty gospel, that mighty good news by which we have all as Christians been changed. We can look back on our pre-gospel life and we see our post-gospel life. We see the life of Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And then we see the but God life that you have graciously given us through Christ. And we give you praise. God, we rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in the God of our salvation. We thank You for what You have done for us through Christ. We pray, Father, that this message would be heard by those who are not believing, those who do not know Christ, those whose sins have not been forgiven, those who have not been removed from the the path of destruction. We pray, Father, that you would mercifully regenerate hearts as your powerful word goes out. Lord, we thank you that as a church we get to, to gather in this way online and to hear the same scripture taught. We pray that you would bring us back together soon and that it would be done safely and wisely and lawfully Lord, we pray that you would continue to unite us as a church during this time of separation. We ask that you would grow our families during this time. That you would protect our families. And God, that in all things, your name would be hallowed and glorified through Four Corners Church. The people of God here in this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today... As we camp out on verse 16, we see three things about this gospel. And here they are. These are the three points for today. Number one, it is without shame. Number two, it is without weakness. And number three, it is without exclusion. Without shame, without weakness, and without exclusion. So let's look at the first, without shame. Look at the very first part of verse 16. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is probably a verse that you have memorized, maybe without even trying to, it's one of those verses similar to John 3.16 in that many Christians will have this in their minds because it's been, they've read it at some point and it just catches on really quickly. We're able to store it in our memories. It is a main verse that is cited or a main uh, portion of a verse that is cited and that is quoted. The gospel of God promised beforehand concerning Christ, is something to be proud of. The gospel is something to boast in, to glory in. And this is the language that Paul uses throughout his epistles. He uses this language about the gospel, about the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, The gospel is a message without shame. But that doesn't mean that it is without the temptation to be ashamed. Wherever there is the gospel, there will be the temptation to be ashamed. In fact, in this world, There is much temptation to be ashamed of this gospel. Jesus anticipated that his disciples would face this temptation. And so we read in Mark chapter 8 verse 38. And this may be another verse that you are familiar with. Jesus says this to his disciples. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... By the way, every generation is an adulterous and sinful generation. Every generation of mankind has been a generation depraved. But Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me, of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It is as though Jesus is saying you will be you will be tempted to be ashamed of me and we see this with peter right there is peter cowering afraid denying three times his master while jesus stands before the religious leaders peter his premier disciple if you will denying ashamed of Christ. Jesus knew that this would be a temptation that his disciples, that all of his followers would face in the first century down until today and into the future. And we see similar language with the apostle Paul as he addresses Timothy, his young protege. Timothy is one of Paul's most faithful co-workers in the gospel. Timothy is one of Paul's children in the faith. Paul has been instrumental at every level in Timothy's growth, and, and, and Paul has so much confidence in Timothy as a, a true child in the faith. But he has to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1:8: Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. This is striking. He has to tell Timothy not to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the gospel. So why? Why is it so tempting to be ashamed of the gospel concerning Christ? Answer, it strips fallen man of all of his pride, his glory, and his righteousness, And it turns his fallen values upside down. That is the reason why the gospel is something that that we are tempted to be ashamed of. Is because it, it turns the world's value system on its head. And it strips away from man everything that he holds dear. His righteousness, his pride, what he boasts in, what he glories in. Everything that makes man feel great about himself stripped away by the message of the gospel. We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where we read in verse 18 for the word of the cross is folly. Word of the cross is synonymous for the gospel. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's folly to the world. Verses 22 to 23, he'll go on to say, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel. And what is the gospel to the Jews and to the Greeks? A stumbling block to Jews, something they fall over, they don't embrace, largely, and folly to Gentiles. The kind of thing that makes people mock, laugh, despise one over. That's what happens to Paul at Athens. He is laughed at. This, who is this goofy guy? With this goofy message. Nothing worthy of listening to. This is pure stupidity. Pure folly to the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, verses 27 to 29, and I think this unpacks for us why it is folly to the Gentiles. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then he says this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Once again, the gospel comes along and it strips away every single thread, every single ounce of basis for glorying and boasting in self. It is precisely because it removes all human boasting that the gospel is so utterly repulsive to fallen man. And perhaps... Nowhere in the ancient world would this temptation have been greater than in the city of Rome. John Chrysostom, an early church father, writes this about the relationship between the Romans there and the Roman Christians. The Romans were most anxiously eager, speaking about Romans in general, not the Christians, but Romans in general. The Romans were most anxiously eager about the things of the world, owing to their riches, their empire, their victories. And their kings they reckoned to be equal to the gods, and so they even called them. And for this cause too, they worshipped them with temples and with altars and with Sacrifices, you've often heard the expression, the glory of Rome, filled, filled to the brim with the pride of life, to use the language of 1 John. But Chrysostom goes on to say this, but Paul was going to preach Jesus, who was thought to be the carpenter's son, who was brought up in Judea and that in the house of a lower class woman who had no bodyguards, who was not encircled in wealth, but even died as a culprit with robbers and endured many other inglorious things. Folly, folly to the world. Folly to the world that looked to the Roman emperor in all of his victories, as in all of his quote-unquote divine status. The conqueror of armies. The subduer of peoples. Who is this lowly Jesus? Oh, folly. Oh, shame. And in fact, later in the second century, there was a writer an antagonist to Christianity named Celsus, one of the early Roman uh, mockers of Christianity. And he wrote this about Christians. He said, let no cultured person... He he wrote this mockingly about, about the Christian position. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any is wanting in sense and culture... If any is a fool, let him come boldly to Christianity. He then calls Christians the most uneducated and vulgar persons. And he compares them to bats, ants, frogs, and worms. Oh, how low. Oh, how shameful. And into this, Paul brings the wrecking ball of these words I am not ashamed of the gospel, not one single bit. So, what about you, Christian? Are you willing to bear the name, to bear the scorn, to bear the shame of the shameless gospel? The truth is that we often fall into this temptation. We are always being tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. But the sad thing is that so often, more than we would like to admit, we fall into this. It is the reason that we like to quote Francis of Assisi. And I have nothing bad to say about Francis. Wonderful Christian man. Would have loved to have met him there in the Middle Ages, but we love to quote that we we preach the gospel, and I'm paraphrasing, but we preach the gospel with our lives, and when necessary, we use words. That is quite convenient for someone who's ashamed of the gospel. Let me just live a good life. Let me just make sure that I treat my wife right and I, and I, I raise my kids well and I, I'm upstanding at work. And I don't ever have to open my mouth about Christ at all. I don't ever have to bear the shame of this gospel of folly to the world at all. I'll just live well and they'll see Christ. Well, that's easy. Paul reminds us here that we should not be ashamed to speak the truth of the cross wherever we go. And we face this this shame, this temptation in various ways. There's intellectual shame and there's moral shame. Biblical Christianity today, the implications of the gospel and the holiness of life that the gospel calls us to are very unpopular in our world. They always have been. But particularly today, with certain moral issues, the gospel speaks to those issues. Think here particularly of the LGBTQ revolution, of the silence of many Christians, and the fear of of offending, and the fear of speaking out. There, There is shame To confess a biblical gospel with its its biblical implications. For those of us, maybe you in more educated circles, there is a, a kind of intellectual shame. Well, the gospel is just so simple, it's so boring, it's so philosophically dry. We want to talk about bigger ideas. We want to talk about uh, political issues, things that are uh, swirling around in academic circles, not this whole message of a crucified first century Jew. What's the glory in that? That's not intellectually stimulating at all. Shame. Tempted to be intellectually ashamed. Of the gospel. So, our first point this morning is that the gospel, Paul says, is without shame. We must not be ashamed of the word of the cross. The second point this morning is that it is without weakness. So, why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Remember, There's logic here with these words for. He's eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not ashamed of it. Why? Because of what we read in the next part of the verse. So let's look. Verse 16 For it is the power of God for salvation. Paul is eager to preach the gospel because he is not ashamed of it and he is not ashamed of it because it is God's power for salvation. Now, this word power is interesting because we just read in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 28 that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So which is it, Paul? Paul? Is the gospel weak or is it strong? Well, to the fallen man, it is pure weakness. A humble, donkey-riding, crucified king, worshipped by humble and lowly servants, In the first century, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1, many of whom were were very lower class, not to say that Christianity was not making its way among all classes of society. We see that. There's uh, evidence for that throughout the New Testament. But we see Paul describing that most of the Christians there are lowly, manger-like, if you will, shepherd-like, if you will, Nazareth-like, Joseph and Mary-like, fishermen like, lowly. Weakness, right? No. In truth, it is anything but weak. As Paul describes it here, it is the most powerful thing in the world. The gospel is the most powerful thing in the world. In all the earth. Nothing matches it. It is, notice, the Power. It is the power. And its power can be seen from the fact that it comes from the greatest possible source and it accomplishes the greatest possible end. Do you see that here in our text? First, its source. Let's look at each of those. First, its source. Notice what it is it is the power of God. God is. Is associated with power all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, you walk up to anybody, even natural revelation, general revelation tells us this. You walk up to anybody and you say the name God and you ask what comes to their mind. It's power. It's power. God is, by the very nature of the term, powerful omnipotent, all-powerful. And he is celebrated for his might in Psalm 77, 14 to 15, and many, many, many other places throughout the Old Testament. But the psalmist says this, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Right now, our family is memorizing Psalm 145, and I am just absolutely blown away and blessed by that psalm. It is filled with praise to God. I love that psalm. And to hear it come out of the mouths of my children is such a profound blessing. It is full of the language of God's power. The gospel, listen to this. People of God, listen to this. Grab hold of this. Get this deep into your heart. The gospel is. Is God's might unleashed on earth? All those powerful acts of God recorded in the Old Testament. All those mighty acts of God that just captured my imagination as a child. Man, he shut the mouths of lions. How is it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't even smell like fire? Fire from heaven consumed even the water on Mount Carmel? with Elijah, and the way he parted that sea, a wind, all night, and there was a a pillar on the left and a pillar of water on the right. Lazarus had been dead for days, and Christ calls him forth from the tomb, and he comes out. How many other wondrous deeds of God can we point to? The plagues over Egypt, crippling, showing the impotence of all the Egyptian so-called gods, all of these powerful acts of God. Hear this, Christian, especially if you've ever said, as we all have, man, I wish I could have been there for that. All of these mighty deeds of God in the Old Testament are mere, mere pointers They are mere pointers that pale in comparison to the power of this gospel. But power to do what? This is the power of God. To do what? That brings us secondly to its end or its effect. We've seen its source. It's from God who is power its effect and its end, it is the power of God for salvation. It has the power to save people. Praise God, people can be saved. People can really, really be saved. It is the power to save people. There is no other way To save people. Christianity is not a philosophy. Although I can understand why the early Christians talked about it as a philosophy. It is a way of life. And in a sense it is. It is is a full-fledged way of life. We are called to a way of life. Subservient to Christ as Lord and trusting in Him. But it is no mere philosophy to be set alongside of others. It is no mere religion to be set aside others. It is power to save people. Every religion is powerless to save people. Every philosophy, powerless to save people. It cannot meet the the most essential need of the human being. But the gospel can. And it alone can. Now, this concept of salvation is massive in scope. I mean, we could, this is the way, you know, we come to a word, and we could just camp out on that word for a very long time, and you're going to see the the idea of the righteousness of God next week, and that's just such a huge idea, and we'll try to dig into that, but the same is true of this word salvation. I mean, we could spend many, many, many weeks and months exploring this idea. It's massive, and Paul will Spend the rest of his epistle unpacking it in in many, many ways. He will explore the various facets of this salvation that the gospel brings. But let me get to the heart of it in this way salvation. It has two sides to it. We are saved from something to something. You could also say it this way, that salvation can be defined negatively in terms of what we are saved from or positively in terms of what happens to us, what we get in salvation. More specifically, salvation is being rescued from destruction and being established in glory. From destruction to glory. These are extremes. These are polar opposites. And I want you to see this. Salvation doesn't just tweak things. Salvation doesn't just make life a little better, a little more endurable. Salvation is a total reversal. It is a 180 degree turn. We go from being damned, condemned, destroyed, as it were, to being raised in glory forever. 1 Thessalonians 5 9 gets the first part of it. For God has not destined us for wrath, God's judgment but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what is salvation? It is not receiving the wrath of God. It is not receiving the judgment of God. I can remember uh, hearing, and I've said this before, I believe I can remember hearing uh, a video where John Piper describes how when he found out that he, had, that he was sick, he found out he had prostate cancer, I believe it was, that he, he this verse was what came to his mind. You're not destined for wrath. (laughs) With that in mind, you can endure anything. God will not judge me for my sin, as David declared. And and Paul will quote in Romans 4, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. God is not going to judge me for my sin. He's not going to utterly destroy me in his wrath because of what I've done every day of my life in utter rebellion. Not mistakes, but wicked sin. Not mishaps or mess-ups, but wicked rebellion against God. He's not going to destroy me for that. He's not going to judge me for that. He's not going to pour out his wrath upon me for that. That is salvation. But it's more than that. It's more than getting out of hell. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words, with eternal glory. So from the previous verse, we see that salvation is from the wrath of God, but it is to something. It's not just, uh, we, now we're not going to be destroyed, we live on as we are. No, we will be raised to the likeness of Christ and dwell forever, permanently, perfectly in the light of God's glory with our glorious Redeemer. That's what salvation is. In a nutshell, of course, there's many more things that could be said and Paul will say many things about it. So Paul is saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's one means of bringing people from destruction to Glory. It has the power to do that. No matter how loud the laughter of men might be, it's powerful to save. No matter if you walk into a room and share the gospel and every last person in that room laughs at you and mocks you, it is the power of God to save. And as we see in Athens, some believed by God's grace. Let me ask you this question very practically. And this is something that I've been thinking about and meditating on for a very long time. When I first started working through Romans in 2010 and even before that as I had encountered it as a a Christian, we constantly need to come back to this verse. Here's the question I think it raises. Do you view the gospel, and I mean really, Do you view the gospel as invested with this kind of power? Really? I mean really? In your own Bible reading? In family worship? In your teaching? You teach a class here at at Four Corners? Before you walk into that classroom, are you cognizant of the fact that you are about to unleash Something that is more powerful than anything in the world. Powerful in terms of its source and in terms of its effect. It saves people. God, by means of the gospel, saves people. The message of the cross. Christ crucified for sinners. This is what sustains family worship. When the kids are jumping off the couch and tickling each other, and trying to eat hidden snacks, and staring off into the distance, or talking to each other, or trying to blow a spit bubble, or whatever else, fill in the blank. This is what sustains us fathers when we sit before our children at night or in the morning, hopefully daily, and we bring the message of the cross to our precious little ones. They may not appear to be receiving it, but what we know where our confidence is placed is that this is the power of God for salvation. It has the power to radically transform our children in a moment. Unto glory. Constant exposure to the gospel is constant exposure to God's powerful means of salvation from beginning to end. Fill your life with the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've just been down or, or just felt. It's one of the reasons why people ask me, what, where do you like, what do you like to read when you're just, you know, n- things aren't going well or you know you're sick or whatever I, for me it's always paul's epistles and i know that that might not may not be the case for some i love the psalms as well and that's somewhere that sometimes i go to the psalms and i love the gospel of john but the reason that paul's epistles are so precious to me is because it, the minute that paul begins to speak i listen to it on my phone it's like it doesn't take him more than a second to get to the gospel, explicitly the gospel, and he's just glorying in the gospel. He's stirring up the, the smell of the gospel and it's just filling my soul. Whatever it is I'm experiencing, whatever it is I'm worrying about, whatever, where, in whatever way I feel down, I'm just lifted up by this powerful salvation-making, salvation-sustaining, salvation-completing message of the cross of Christ and its all, all of its glory. Let me read you a quote from John Calvin. But observe how much Paul ascribes to the ministry of the Word. Why do we take the Bible so seriously at Four Corners Church? Just a little parenthesis. We'll interrupt Calvin for a moment. Why do we take the Bible so seriously? Why is it not our objective to entertain you on a Sunday morning? Why is it our objective to to dig into the meat of the word and feast upon it and meditate on it and have to go back and listen to it and study it and think about it and ponder it? Why is that so important to us? Hear what he says. But observe how much Paul ascribes to the ministry of the word when he testifies that God thereby puts forth his power to save. For he speaks not here of any secret revelation, but of vocal preaching. It hence follows that those, as it were, willfully despise the power of God and drive away from them his delivering hand, who withdraw themselves from the hearing of the word. Maybe you're hearing this message and you haven't really been following the sermons at Four Corners for the last couple months. It's been a little bit of a hiatus, a little vacation from church. You haven't been gathering with God's people, but since you haven't been here gathering, you've just sort of neglected these these scripture readings each week, these sermons each week. Well, I'll just wait until we gather back together for that. Hear what Calvin is saying here, we willfully despise the power of God and drive away from ourselves his delivering hand when we withdraw ourselves from the hearing of the word. This is God's powerful means in your life. That's why we're filming these sermons. It's not because we have to keep, quote unquote, the production at Four Corners going, it's not it. It's not because people give tithes and offerings to the church, and therefore we feel a burden to make sure there's a product constantly available for those who would give tithes and offerings. That's not it either. It is because this message is so powerful and so life changing that we need it constantly for our souls. It's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. So it is without shame. It is without weakness. And finally, this morning, as we close, it is without exclusion. Look with me at the latter part of verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Listen to this. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek It is truly ironic that one of the most popular catchwords among those who oppose biblical Christianity in our time is this word inclusion. This is the the great virtue of many today who adamantly oppose biblical Christianity. This is the great catchword of the LGBTQ movement. Inclusion. Everywhere we see inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. This is the God of our culture at the moment. There's a competition among businesses and organizations to convince the world that they are the most inclusive, that they are at the very front lines of inclusion. The irony, of course, is that there is nothing more inclusive than the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is, as Paul says here, for everyone. For everyone. No nation, no race, no class of people is excluded. The gospel goes everywhere in the world, and it extends an invitation to the whole world. There's never a going forth of the gospel in which you say, but you can't come. This is not for you. This is for those people. It is for all people. It penetrates every life of sin. It penetrates every type of person on the planet across space and time. And that is why Paul says here to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek here is a stand-in for Gentile. All people. The Jewish people and the non-Jewish nations. But notice here that Paul qualifies this in full inclusion in two ways. First, it is not merely everyone, but everyone who believes. And for that reason, we could say that in this respect, Christianity is the most exclusive message on the planet. It excludes no one, but it says this is the one way. I've talked to Hare Krishnas, Hindus, others, who are quite happy to say, oh yes, Jesus He is great. Jesus is great. They're quite happy to add Jesus to their own set of deities or their own way of salvation as they see it because there is no exclusion. It's just wrap everything up. Christianity comes along and says, there is no name, no other name under heaven by which men may be saved but Christ the Lord. That's it. So it is exclusive in this respect, but it is for all people. No exclusions. The gospel is for you, hearer, wherever you may be. Maybe you just stumbled upon this video, and by God's providence, this particular sermon is on video, rather than being just on our website, you've been able to stumble upon this, and I want you to know that the gospel is for you. It is for you. It is for all people. Everyone who believes is saved. Everyone who trusts what God has done in Christ. This idea of believing or faith will be explained and unpacked a little bit more in Romans 4 with the example of Abraham and. That will be particularly enriching for us, I think, as a church, because we walked alongside of Abraham for so long. And so when we get to Romans 4 and we read those verses, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and so forth. When we get to those words in Romans 4, we'll be able to relate because we watched that unfold in Genesis. And there we will get much more clarity about what this saving faith is. But for now, we just need to see that this message saves those who believe. And it is this message itself that gives faith. The Holy Spirit uses the gospel to bring faith. So, back to our family worship time and our teaching time. When we bring forth the gospel, we are bringing forth the power not just to save if they have faith, but the very power to create faith in their hearts. Finally, another qualifier is that it is for the Jew first. Now, you may read this and think, what in the world is Paul talking about? The gospel is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew. Well, John, Jesus said this in John four twenty two, to the Samaritan woman. Salvation is from the Jews. Paul will say this later in Romans nine four to five. To them, the Jews belong. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race. According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We, Gentiles, are grafted in. We are grafted in. We are not the natural branches. We are grafted in unnaturally, as it were, to this olive tree. This natural olive tree going back to the patriarchs. Go and read that. We'll get there at some point. We were at one time in the loins, so to speak, of our ancestors. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Ephesians 2 verse 12. What should this do in us? It should create humility. For a Gentile Christian, there must always be a recognition of this reality and a response of humility. And I fear that so much theologizing of the church expressed in anti-Semitism in the last 2,000 years has forgotten the humility, the humble disposition with which every Gentile Christian should come to God and should think about the Jewish people. Unfortunately, this has not been the case. The truths, very explicit and clear, I would say, in Romans 11, have been twisted and rejected by many. So that this this humility has been lost often in the church. And yet, though the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, yet in Christ the Jew has no greater status than the Gentile. Galatians 3.28, what does it say? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no greater status for the Jewish Christian than the Gentile Christian. But in terms of God's redemptive historical plan, In terms of the unfolding of God's salvation in salvation history, there is a prioritization of the Jewish people very clear here in this verse. And that will prepare us for Romans 9 to 11. So, this gospel that Paul preaches, that he will unpack in his letter to the Romans, is without shame, without weakness. And without exclusion, wherever we go, as long as we live, this gospel calls Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, this gospel calls for the greatest commitment, the greatest boldness, and the greatest expectation. It and it alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ, the gospel of your beloved Son, the gospel of the crucified, buried, raised, exalted, returning Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, how much rich teaching on the gospel we will get to have through Paul's letter to the Romans. And I pray, Father, that in my own heart, in the hearts of those in my family, in the hearts of those in our church, that the laxity, the negligence that plagues us, the being ashamed that plagues us, The struggles of failing to see the the internal logic that Paul puts here so clearly. God, I pray that you would eclipse that with a clear view and appropriation of this mighty message of Christ. God, that we would truly believe that the gospel is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. We praise you this day. And ask that you would use this message for your glory and the good of your people and the conversion of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.